Are you a label reader? Do you read food labels? Okay, but do you read the labels of the cleaning products you use? Well, you can't, even if you're concerned about what's in those products and how they may be impacting the environment, because cleaning product manufacturers don't have to tell you what's actually in their products. If they did, you'd find that most commercial cleaning and laundry products are filled with a long list of chemical ingredients that are known to be harmful. Chemicals that make products blue or smell like flowers, or make clothes appear white and bright, or counteract the effects of other chemicals in the product. Many of those chemicals are not removed in water treatment plants and wind up in ground and surface waters where they can cause havoc in aquatic environments and even threaten our own health. This is the story of a young woman who set out to fix this problem of pollution from cleaning products. This is how we could be doing things better if we just paid a little more attention and took a little more care. And this is Green Street. Welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of doctors, public health experts, authors, lawyers, engineers, advocates, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more about what is really going on around you and how you and your family can live a better and healthier life in this increasingly toxic world. On this edition of Green Street, you'll meet a remarkable young woman who is changing the landscape of cleaning products in America. Now, before you yawn and think, really, cleaning products when we've got all these other things to worry about? Let me just say one thing that I've learned after working in the environmental health field for many years. Everything is connected. Everything. So, as we contaminate the environment with the toxic chemicals in commercial laundry products, as household after household throws plastic pods of brightly colored laundry detergent in the washing machine, along with that plastic chemical-infused sheet to make the laundry smell clean, Let's understand that we're contaminating our own water and changing the environment and sometimes even the physiology of the animals who call water their home. That will, I guarantee, come back to bite us in the long run. And so while we all worry about climate change and politics and nuclear war and the future of our country, here's something we can actually change ourselves. So stay tuned for that coming up here on Green Street right after Patty and the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? Well, end of the year, so I thought I would talk a little bit about natural disasters from the year 2021. This is an article written by Peter Dykstra. It was published in Environmental Health News, and it's called 2021's Unnatural Disasters. Unlike downpours, droughts, hurricanes, typhoons, and more calamities, there isn't a clear, undebatable link between climate change and tornadoes. But last week's horrific twisters and hurricane-force winds in a midweek system added on to an unprecedented weather year. In February, the polar vortex brought the jet stream and its Arctic air far down south, freezing pipes and knocking out power for millions. The deep freeze was blamed for at least 275 deaths in Texas, Oklahoma, and surrounding states. Hundreds more died in June when an unheard-of heat wave gripped the Pacific Northwest. Portland, Oregon reached 116 degrees Fahrenheit. Lightened British Columbia set the all-time Canadian record of 121 degrees Fahrenheit. 
As roads buckled in a region completely unfamiliar with such heat, scientists said it would be virtually impossible for such a heat wave without climate change. The heat and record drought helped spawn a summer of record wildfires also. Oregon's bootleg fire burned nearly half a million acres, and California's Dixie Fire doubled it later in the summer. In late August, Hurricane Henri turned into a tropical storm rainmaker, drenching an area from New Jersey to Nova Scotia. New York Central Park received two inches of rain in an hour, and then five inches more the next day for good measure. Both were records. Days later, Hurricane Ida hit Louisiana as a Category 4, causing $64 billion in damage, according to NOAA. The storm stayed alive long enough to become a lethal rainmaker from Maryland into New England. And then there were record low water levels in Lakes Powell and Mead, the Colorado River mega reservoirs. They provide hydropower and water for the cities of the Southwest and irrigation for much of America's produce. There is at best faint hope that the Colorado will bounce back, even as L.A., San Diego, Phoenix, and Las Vegas continue to grow. California's Lake Oroville saw record low levels this summer, only four years after record high levels raised fears of a catastrophic dam failure. Last month, torrential rains returned to British Columbia. Once all the damage is tallied, it may turn out to be the costliest natural disaster in Canadian history. Overseas, record flooding in Germany, unprecedented sandstorms in Beijing, stunningly accelerating ice melt in Greenland, and a continental record 119 degrees Fahrenheit in Sicily were just a few of the reasons that this isn't a North American anomaly. So let's take the natural out of most kinds of natural disasters. Volcanoes? Still natural. Earthquakes? Sure, unless they're the little ones associated with fracking operations. Plagues of locusts? Natural, I think. But most of the others? Is it asking too much of us that we don't assault Mother Nature and then hang the blame on her? There's a roundup for you. Peter Dykstra is a really good writer. I love him. Yep. Yeah, he's really he's, good. He's terrific. So 2021 was quite the year for events driven by climate change. And I don't expect 2022 is going to get any better and neither does anybody else. No. This is kind of a um, it's where a we are new, now. It's, it's where we are. It's the new normal. Yeah. All right. What else you got? Okay. So this is a great one written by Olivia Roseanne, and it's published in EcoWatch. And the title is Green Groups Sue the EPA to Protect Pollinators from Deadly Pesticides. Two environmental groups are suing the Environmental Protection Agency to protect bees and other pollinators from deadly pesticides. The Center for Food Safety and Pesticide Action Network filed a lawsuit demanding that the EPA close a loophole that allows seeds coated with neonicotinoids to escape labeling and registration under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, known as FIFRA. Science has shown that coating seeds with pesticides is not only ineffective, but can cause real harm to pollinators, workers, and farmers. Pan senior scientist and plaintiff Margaret Reeves said in a statement, the vast majority of acres planted in crops such as corn, soybean, and cotton are planted with pesticide-treated seeds. Neonicotinoids are a class of pesticides that are extremely toxic to bees and other insects. In fact, one neonic-treated corn seed has enough active ingredient to kill a quarter of a million bees. The Natural Resource Defense Council told EcoWatch that a recent study found that one of the most common neonicotinoids can reduce bee populations for generations. 
the European Union banned three of the most common neonicotinoids for outdoor use in 2018, but they remain the most widely used class of pesticides in the U.S. They are especially popular as a treatment on seeds. In 2011, more than 30% of soybean and more than 79% of corn came from neonicotinoid-treated seeds. Further, crops grown from these seeds cover more than 150 million acres of U.S. farmland every year. This is a problem because more than 80% of the deadly pesticides can leave the seed and pollute the surrounding soil, air, and water. The neonicotinoids that remain are taken up by the plant itself, entering its leaves and nectar. The neonicotinoids attack the central nervous system of bees, birds, and other pollinators, impairing their navigation and learning and causing paralysis and death. Despite these risks, CFS and PAN discovered that seeds coated with these pesticides are subject to fewer regulations than other pesticide applications because they are not registered and labeled under FIFRA. They informed the EPA of this loophole in 2017 through a legal rulemaking petition, which means the agency was required by law to answer. It never did, leading to this new lawsuit. While the EPA sits on its hands, grave harm to bees and other pollinators continues. Yeah, the fact that it's not labeled as containing pesticides excuses it from all kinds of regulation. I mean, really, that's where we are just because it wasn't labeled that way. They're not registered and labeled under yeah. FIFRA. So they're, okay. so they're subject to fewer regulations. There it's you go. crazy. Yeah. No, they're, they're coated seeds. If you, I don't know if, you're, if anybody out there is a gardener, but if you buy you know, like conventional seeds to put in your garden, you find that some of them, especially seeds like peas and beans and corn and so on, are pink, right? Because they're coated with these neonics or other, you know, fungicides and, and so on. Don't buy coated seeds or pesticide-treated coated seeds. Buy organic seeds. There you go. Okay, what else you got? This last one is also about climate, but it's interesting because it's impacting New York City now. And it, it was printed, or it was published actually by NPR, and it is entitled The Largest City in the U.S. Bans Natural Gas in New Buildings. Climate activists from the Gas-Free NYC Coalition and elected officials held a news conference outside City Hall ahead of a vote on legislation that would ban natural gas hookups in newly constructed buildings. And then New York City's council approved the ban on natural gas in newly constructed buildings, joining cities like San Jose and San Francisco that have made similar commitments to reduce emissions. Moving away from natural gas means that stoves and heat pumps will be powered by electricity instead, cutting down on carbon emissions. Nearly 40% of carbon emissions in the country and more than half of New York City's emissions come from buildings. Massive pushback from the gas industry against natural gas bans hasn't stopped cities across the country from taking on the effort. At least 42 cities in California have acted to limit gas in new buildings, and Salt Lake City and Denver have also made plans to move toward electrification. In Ithaca, New York, the city even committed to ending the use of natural gas in all buildings, not just new ones. But passing the ban in New York City, the largest city in the country, marks a significant benchmark for other cities trying to cut down carbon emissions in the fight against climate change. The efforts to ban natural gas in new buildings in New York City may have also jump-started legislation to expand the ban to the entire state. Legislation from state lawmakers Senator Brian Kavanaugh and Assemblymember Emily Gallagher, who are both Democrats, 
would require any buildings constructed in the state after 2023 to be entirely electric. If it passes, New York would become the first state to ban natural gas in new buildings at a statewide level. Go New York State. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Isn't that come great? on. Terrific. That's let's really be, great. Let's be a leader on things like this. Yep. It's really, really important. And New York actually has a lot of power. You know, they, they really do set a precedent, and other states look to New York for what they're doing. This would be fantastic. So thank you, New York City. And, you know, once New York City took it on, now the state is looking into it, and there you go. And may I say thank you to all the groups in New York that have been working so hard on this issue. Oh, yeah, we know some you know, of them, remember? Is, yeah, we sure we do. We've working, had them on, this, had them on the we've show. We've had them on the show. They were working yeah. on, on fighting the gas pipelines going yeah. under New York and around New York City and into Long Island, and yeah. And they, you know, we had people on who were were worried about the gas stoves in restaurant kitchens. Years ago. Anyway, congratulations to all of you who worked so hard. This takes a lot of work and a long time to get something like this done. And it's good news. And it's great news. And it's good news. We we have no good news today. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. When something goes down the drain, where exactly does it go? Okay, a series of larger and larger pipes, I suppose, but then what? Probably a water treatment plant somewhere, and from there, out it goes into the world. Water treatment plants take out some of the most harmful chemicals, but they can't take out everything. And as we learn more about how chemicals commonly found in our food, cosmetics, and even our cleaning products can harm the environment, do we require that they be taken out? No, we do not. We don't even have the technology to do it if we wanted to. As a result, every time we wash the dishes or clothes, we're creating a problem that's getting bigger every day. Luckily, while we wait for regulations or for giant consumer products companies to get with the sustainability plan, there's a solution on the horizon. Kate Jacobus is the founder and CEO of a company called Meliora, which is a product that Patty discovered and which we use in our own house. Patty called the company one day to get some more information and found herself on the phone with Kate. She was so passionate about her work and what the company was doing, we decided she'd be a great guest on Green Street. Last week we caught up with Kate Jacobus. We started out by asking her what sparked her interest in cleaning products and what led to the founding of her company. Here's our interview with Kate Jacobus. My undergrad degree is in material science engineering. It's a very chemical based, so that, that's what I come from, um, particularly uh, One of the first big projects I did that got me more interested on the environmental side was actually taking lead out of faucets. So Mm. I um, I have a degree in metallurgy, and that was when I entered the professional world. I thought of myself as a very, you know, environmentally responsible person. I recycled, I did all the right things, and then I really got to start to understand how deep some of these problems were and how much intersection there is between the world of developing and manufacturing products and the environmental impact of it. Um, so at the time you, you mentioned New York, New York has some really great you know, laws and, and is pretty forward thinking. California is another state that, that, that tends to pass laws that are a little bit more progressive on the environmental front. And at the time they had 
passed a law requiring the amount of lead in faucets to be reduced. Um, so I started working on that from the technical angle and really started to understand, oh, this is not just, did you put something in a recycling bin? This is understanding like the deep technical issues. What can we replace it with? If we're going to change out the brass and faucets, do we want to make sure that we're using something that is at least as healthy? Could we possibly sub out something worse? And how do we make sure that when we still make those faucets, they work and they're not going to crack in, in people's homes? So it was a really interesting technical issue, but it really brought me the knowledge of seeing like, hey, I think I want to study this more. Uh, so then I went back to school and I actually studied environmental engineering to really get deeper into the, some of the details. And that was more of a focus on how do we look at wastewater, uh, for example. Uh, wastewater was my, my concentration, wastewater management. So if you know, if we are putting something in our water, whether it's by mistake or on purpose, like drugs, petrochemicals, all sorts of uh, things that are in the wastewater, plastic, VOCs, uh, are, are they getting removed from the wastewater? How do we have an impact? You know, if, if I'm in Chicago and I, I put something in my laundry machine here, eventually all that water is going to end up going to St. Louis. You know, they, there's a treatment step in between, but other choices I can make either as a consumer or as, you know, maybe a product manufacturer that helps impact that environmental process in a, in a positive way, or at least not in a negative way. Yeah. So, you know, we work with a lot of people who are involved with the green chemistry movement. So mm -hmm. did that movement inspire you at all? Did you get involved with that at all before you started coming up with product formulations? Well, I think it's kind, it kind of all works together a little bit. And I think there's a couple of ways to think about it. So some of the green chemistry movement, you know, takes the, the worst of the worst and then tries to find direct substitutions. And I think that's a great way to try and attack some of the most toxic chemicals that we use in, in consumer products. The other approach you could take is, is using what's called the precautionary principle, where rather than like trying to move from one thing that you know is bad to another thing that you think might be bad is to try and assume that you start from assuming everything could be an issue and, and really kind of start from a whitelist. Like ever, people might be familiar with the idea of blacklist, like a product or a chemical that you don't want to use. Yeah. Uh, we try and approach it from a whitelist perspective, starting with ingredients that we know we're comfortable with, literally things like soap, things like baking soda, trying to take the, the simplest, most widely used, um, safe, like generally recognized as safe chemicals that we can and use mm -hmm. those as the building box from our products rather than starting from a toxic product and, and trying to, to design mm. out the toxicity. Mm. Yeah, and, let, and let's talk about that a little bit because there's so much going on in the world today where like, for instance, BPA. So, mm -hmm. you know, so BPA, you know, is a bad player. So now they're, they're substituting it with BPS and BPF right. and so on, which which have, you know, basically the same toxic impacts as BPA. Right. Um, so yeah. these are called regrettable substitutions. So this idea yeah. of starting with a whitelist instead of a blacklist and hoping that you're going to get closer and closer to an acceptable product, both from a human health per perspective and an environmental health perspective is really very innovative. Thanks. Yeah, that is our hope. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It, one of the scary things is like, yeah, okay, you start with a yeah, PFAS or, or a BPA or a chemical that we have, you know, established that causes issues. And then rather than leapfrog to something else that we just don't know about, and we're sort of crossing our fingers, hoping it doesn't have the same issues, we, we kind of take the opposite and, and try and start with something we are comfortable with, and then try really hard on, on the formulation angle to, to make a product that works well. So give us an example of some of the things that were on, on the white list. 
Sure. Um, so baking soda is, a, is one of them. Um, washing soda, which is sort of a, a chemical cousin of baking soda. Um, they're actually mined from, from the same area and they're, they're very similar chemically. Those are uh, ingredients that have been used for thousands of years. Um, we actually have the ability to mine that uh, from Toronto or in the U.S. for the next few thousands of years. So it's not mm. even a, an issue of sustainability from that angle. Um, mm. we, we've got plenty of supply. And since we've been using it so so long, we, we've we've got a lot of data uh, on the general safety of it, a lot mm. of established data, um, you know, on, on its use. So those are some examples. Soap is another one. Um, soap is a pretty old product, you know, another couple thousand year old uh, product. And yeah. so we like to use that where, wherever we can. Uh, very, very simple chemistry, simple ingredients. And so, so those are really the, the base of, of a lot of our products. Soap is a remarkable cleaner. I think a lot of us, you know, learned in the last year um, how really remarkably effective it is, uh, you know, with hand washing, soap and water cleans um, mm -hmm. it remarkably well due to its really simple chemical properties. It just removes it's, germs and washes funny, things it's away. Funny. I, I never thought of, of soap as being a very simple product. You know, I think of soap as being kind of a, a manufactured thing. It's got fragrances and it's got this in it and that in it. But where does soap come from, to ask a sure. stupid question? No, it's not. It's actually one of my favorite questions. You couldn't have made me happier. Okay. Uh, so, so soap. Um, so when you're saying soap, uh, kind of thinking of it as a, as a commercial product, I, I agree with you that that's kind of a lot of commonly thought definition of soap is like this. I don't know. It comes out of a factory. It's got this really strong scent in it. You don't need any fragrance at all in order to make soap. So a lot of the soap we make, and in fact, all the soap we make for cleaning has absolutely no fragrance in it. So the 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 chemical definition, in fact, the legal definition of soap is that is it is sodium salt of a fatty acid. So that's the chemical definition. What that really means is um, the way you get soap is you take a fat and you can take a vegetable fat, you can take an animal fat, and then you rearrange the molecules using a really high pH substance. Um, usually we use something called lye. It's uh, the chemical that you might use to clean out your drains. It's called sodium hydroxide. Mm -hmm. And it's a three element molecule, very, very simple molecule. It's manufactured from seawater. So we take those two things. Um, what happens is that sodium hydroxide, that lye, that, that high pH substance actually pulls apart the fatty acid molecules and it rearranges them. So you start with, with an oily substance, something that will like grab onto oil and it will resist water. And mm -hmm. it actually changes that um, and pulls it in, into kind of two pieces. And uh, what you're left with is this really interesting molecule and it has this property called amphiphilia. You might've heard of something called hydrophilia or hydrophobia, meaning something that's water loving or water hating. The great thing about an amphiphilic molecule is that it is both of those things. So one end of the molecule <laughs> loves water and one end of the molecule loves oil. So that's why it works so well. If you've got a bunch of oil on your hands and then you put soap on it, um, it'll, it'll literally rinse away all that oil. And that's because all those little molecules will grab onto the oil and then pull them into the water and, and wash them away. So it's high school level chemistry. We're not talking, you know, PhD stuff here. Um, you, you can, if you, if you get interested, you can make a simple type of soap, you know, in your own home with some basic safety gear. But it, it's really world changing how, how much soap uh, can do and how simple it is and, and really how life saving it is. Wow. So fat. Okay. So I didn't take chemistry in high school, as you can tell. <laughs> so was this discovery made years, obviously, a long time ago? 
Yeah, there's not really great documentation to point to an exact way that it started. So there, there is a story that some people will tell you is true, but but one way that feasibly might have happened, um, you can imagine if you're sitting around a fire, you know, many thousands of years ago, you're sitting around a fire, you've just finished, you know, turning uh, something you, you've hunted down, you're turning it on a spit the fats of that animal uh, carcass kind of drip into the ashes of your fire. And then later you splash some water on that fire. You might notice that there could be some little bubbles in there. So that that is sort of the apocryphal story of how soap was discovered um, because the one way you can make soap in here for all your um, you know ap- apocalypse plans, this is a good one. So if you take <laughs> the ashes of a, of, a, of a hardwood fire and you soak them in water, you'll get a very high pH substance. It's, it's similar, although not exactly the same as the sodium hydroxide that we use now today to make the soap. So you'll get that, like it's this very caustic substance. It by itself will will definitely do some cleaning, but it's also very harsh. So if you mix that substance with an oil or a fat and you just let it sit for a while, um, you can also cook it over a a sort of a bubbling cauldron or again, you know, uh, out on your campfire, you will get this like kind of greasy liquidy soap. And that's what we think Uh is how, you know, soap making started. And then as we learn more about the chemistry of those reactions, we were able to substitute exact substitutions of molecules to to get something that is more consistent in quality. But um, even today, like if you look up, there's there's sort of uh, pioneer recipes that will say, you know, take a scoop of lard and take a scoop of wood ash. And you you can find these very, very old recipes uh, showing you how to make a soap. Well, that's cool. All right, so let's move on. Let's move on to uh, let's move on to to this company that you have created um, yep. that is manufacturing products made from these very simple, non-toxic ingredients. As you said, some things off the grass list that's generally regarded as safe list from the EPA, mm-hmm. um, and. Not only have you made safe products that are safe for people to use and safe for the environment, but they actually work. They're actually efficacious. So tell us how this whole thing, this whole thing happened. Yeah, that, that's the trick, right? Because no matter how green or safe something is, if it, if it doesn't clean your clothes, you've just wasted all, all of that energy in, yeah. in making and selling that product. Right. So yeah, you, you know, you'll see that we we don't actually sell everything. Um, we, we keep getting asked for automatic dish product and we, we haven't launched one yet because we haven't found one that has the ingredients we're comfortable with that does a good enough job. But mm-hmm. the great news is we have found many products that that we've manufactured that do at least a good as job as as conventional products particularly we've got a soap stick for stain removal that regularly shocks people that are, aren't even you know into quote unquote green or sustainable products in general and somebody you know gifts them this this soap stick and they suddenly they saved all their laundry from stains so having a, a background in chemistry and manufacturing certainly helps with that we do a lot of testing a lot of tweaking uh, for the exact formulas, you know, I mentioned, you know, taking a scoop of grease and a scoop of, uh, of wood ash lye um, to make old school soap. That, that's not how we do it. Uh, we, we have a little bit more exacting process and, and we're, we're tweaking things to, to make sure we don't, uh, we have exactly the chemicals we're looking for in there. And that, that makes it um, a bit more effective. And having, having that chemistry and getting that right is, is one of the things that we work on the most at Meliora, uh, especially before we launch a product to make sure that, we, that we've got something that, that passes all of our tests. Okay. So what, what kind of products actually do you have? If you don't mind just going down the, the list of the, uh, yeah. the products that you, that you have manufactured. 
Absolutely. So, so the general categories we have are, are like laundry and then general home cleaning. So for laundry, we have a laundry powder that um, it's a it's a dried product, uh, which is great for not having the package in plastic. So we've got a dried powder. You put a scoop of it, uh, just uh, like same way you'd add your liquid uh, detergent to to your laundry machine. Um, and we've also got a stain remover bar, so a pre-treating to get out your especially oils, grease, uh, blood, basically any stain. So uh, that's our laundry line. And we also have an all-purpose cleaning and that includes um, an all-purpose cleaner that comes in tablet format. So you actually add your own water to it. Um, again, that, that makes it a much lower impact product. Um, we also have a, a scrub. So tubs, uh, tile, sink type scrub to really shine up those, those hard surfaces. Um, and- um, You have a, a bar for, for hand washing dishes, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. So uh, it's it's just it's a block of soap that is a you can rub a, a dishcloth on it. You can run it under the sink to fill up something to soak if you're if you're soaking a big pot or something. Um, and yeah, exactly. It's it's to hand wash dishes again. A replacement for that like bottle of liquid dish detergent. I think we skipped a piece of this story. I want to know how you went from school to becoming uh, you know a business owner. An entrepreneur. Tell, yeah, yes, tell me sure. about that. <laughs> um, you know, that it wasn't, um, that was not planned, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that I, I studied chemistry, I studied material science. I was never one of those lemonade stand kids. I didn't think I was, you know, I, I'm not a, a business person by um by nature, I was, you know, I had a rock collection. I was definitely mm. one of those kids that wanted to bang things together and, and find out how they worked. And what was really cool is after going to school for, for engineering, I, I just love problem solving. Like I love, you know, I see a problem and like, it'll, it'll really kind of get its, its hooks in me. Mm -hmm. um, and once I, I looked around and had spent a few years working um, in, in industry, I realized how much, you know, as an engineer, I have a certain set of tools available to me. You know, I can, I can do research. I can, you know, use um, computer programs to model issues and, and fix them. Um, but, but as I, got more experience in the working world, I realized that, you know, engineers are not the only people with tools to solve problems and that a business itself can be thought of as a tool to solve a problem. It's really, mm -hmm. you know, a business is a big machine, right? It's, it's a set of processes that has inputs and outputs. And if you, if you turn its attention on a social or environmental problem, you have a lot of different methods that you can use in order to fix that problem. And so it became really fascinated with this idea of socially conscious business, uh, mission focused business, or, or having a business, again, that that not just solves the problem of how do we make money, but solves an actual environmental problem of, hey, how can we make products that people need that want to that they want to use that are environmentally conscious that that have a lower impact. Okay, so you're putting a couple of molecules in of your education and then another molecule of your your desire to solve problems, you know, and then your your whole idea of just being a, uh, you know, an environmentally conscious person and looking at this really as a challenge. And, you know, I think it's fantastic. I mean, this is what we need more of. It's, you know, it's amazing. So tell me how the business is doing. 
it's doing great. What's really fun about, about running a business like Meliora is that on one hand, we're solving an environmental problem. We have people say all the time, like, you know, you're, you're fixing a problem. You, you, you feel like a nonprofit in some ways. And then I say, well, that's great. And I, I love hearing that. But if you just looked at our PNL, like our, our profit and loss statement, you looked at our financial numbers, you would never know that we are a mission focused business. Mm-hmm. Um, we look like a healthy business. We are profitable. We have good cash flow. We're growing. Um, we've doubled or tripled every year since we were founded. So there's certainly some, some challenges with that. And, and I, I really love, you know, like having a business where, you know, I think we all sometimes, you know, we, we worry about things out in the world, right? We, we, we see problems and we, we, we wonder what can we do to fix them. And one of the most fulfilling things to me about, about running Meliora is those are the same to me. So when I see a problem out there, uh, an environmental problem, um, a, a labor issue problem, my answer to it is wake up and go to work because that's how you're fixing that problem. You know, we, we can change these issues. We can offer our staff great, a great place to work, living wages and, and all these things. So, so being able to run a business that is a successful business, but also solves a problem is really fulfilling. You're listening to Green Street, Patty and Doug Wood, and our special guest, Kate Jacobus, the founder and CEO of Meliora. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Green Street, the environmental health show, Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today is Kate Jacobus, founder and CEO of Meliora, which is all about doing well by doing good. Do you have to do you have to comply with a bunch of government regulations to put a product like that out on the market? I mean, what kind of uh, limitations does the government have, if any, on putting yeah. out a putting out a product? Cleaning products themselves are in a little bit of a uh, I, w- I guess I would almost call it a blind spot, really. I think that's mm. the, the right way to describe it. Um, there are regulations on cosmetics. So um, mm-hmm. depending sure. on how we, we make hand soap, for example. So depending on how we describe hand soap or how other people would describe, you know, soaps uh, or like lotions uh, and other topical creams and things like that, those would fall under cosmetics regulations. And there's there's some regulations about that. So we definitely keep an eye on those just, just in case, because there's a tiny bit of overlap. And if you are making claims about antimicrobial activity, then that technically is um, considered a pesticide and the EPA regulates those types of claims and those types of products. Um, However, in in the zone that we're in, where we're we're not making active antimicrobials, we are not making cosmetics and and topical lotions and things like that. Uh, Cleaning products have 
very, very few explicit regulations. There, there's the Toxic Substance Control Act, so there's certain ingredients that you know that nobody can use. We, of course, have to comply with FTC regulations. It's the Federal Trade Commission. So, for example, we have to label you know our products with how much is in them, um, and, and so on and so forth. But mm-hmm. there's currently in the U.S. there's no federal regulation that requires cleaning products to even have an ingredients list. So when I and say there's a blind spot in yeah, cleaning, like yeah. it's we're, we're really missing the mark on, on on regulating the cleaning product industry. Sounds like you think we should have those regulations. I, I do. Yeah. I strongly believe that that we should have higher regulations in, in the industry. Well, there's no question about that. I mean, it, the use of laundry detergents, liquid laundry detergents with their optical brighteners and their non-phenol compounds and so on. I mean, they are causing havoc, you know, as well as the one for dioxane issue. And, you know, we live mm-hmm. in an area of New York on, on here on Long Island where we are literally ground zero for the highest levels of one four dioxane in our water mm. supply, which is wow. all underground aquifers. Or it's, it's a mm. sole, source, sole source aquifer. And I keep thinking, I know that 1,4-dioxane is created. They're not actually adding it to the product, but it's created when you use that ethoxylation process on on these cheap detergents, right, to make them Mm -hmm. milder for skin and so on. But you're talking about gallons of this stuff. I mean, gallons in just a single household. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about millions of people crammed onto this small island here, um, you know, off New York City. And, you know, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. I mean, nobody, you can't even find powdered laundry detergent. I have to buy it especially, you know, mm-hmm. and I have, I have to order it to get, you know, laundry detergent in a box with, uh, you know, powdered product inside because everybody right. uses liquid. And part of it is that, you know, they say that, you know, you're using these new Energy Star, you know, washing machines and so on that only, have cold water wash on them. And people mm-hmm. are saying, well, you know, the, the powdered laundry detergent doesn't dissolve. I'm like, yes, it does. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, you're crazy, you know, but, but right. it's, they've been sold this, who knows whether, you know, the manufacturers of Tide, Procter & Gamble and all these other things, you know, are welcoming these Energy Star, you know, appliances so that they can sell these liquid laundry detergents. And of course, it's a single use plastic and then that's another whole issue. So tell us about- how you actually went even a step further besides the the non-toxic and efficacious products that you have that don't hurt people or the environment you also decided not to package anything in plastic yeah um yeah you're right you bring up a couple i mean a, a ton of really important issues yeah there is i mean there is the assumption of regulation i think by most people they say like oh you know i'm buying it at the store of course it must be regulated of course it must be safe and and that's just not it's not true mm-hmm. um and uh, you know i think I'm, I'm hoping i'm hopeful that more people are starting to understand that um and, and that that knowledge will continue to to grow but yeah packaging is another really important issue you know and it's it's both the the giant plastic jugs um that that become you know it's single-use plastic you use it once and then you hopefully recycle it although not always we all, we know that just because something is recyclable does not mean that it does get recycled so there's that issue of packaging and so that's why we we don't have any single-use plastic anywhere in our product line. We do use um, a little bit of plastic in our sprayers, our, our reusable all-purpose all-purpose cleaner bottles. That's a glass bottle, um, and then currently we're using a plastic sprayer. But in, and, that, in our and laundry, by the way, yeah. and I have to say, in it also, you know, kudos to you that that plastic top on the glass bottle is very heavy duty and should last for. <laughs> 
years and years and years. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that, that is, that is the intent. Of course, we're always working on eliminating that. Like we, we've got, you know, there's, there's a board at work where it's sort of like these targets and like, it's like, like a literal target that we're trying to, trying to aim at. We would love to get rid of, you know, any, any amount of plastic. Um, we've already eliminated it from all of our shipping or you're not going to get a box from us that has plastic tape. Yeah. So we're working on eliminating that, but our entire laundry line, everything from the canister of, of the powder to the scoop that it's inside is a, it's a stainless steel scoop. The soap stick for stain removal is a solid product in a paperboard box. Um, so that's an entirely plastic free line. And one of the issues we're starting to run into is that people are realizing that, Hey, they don't want this plastic packaging. And unfortunately we're actually seeing a shift in plastic from the outside of the packaging to the actual product itself. Uh, so we're seeing more laundry pods. We're seeing more laundry sheets. And I think a lot of people are just not aware that those sheets and pods are made of plastic. Uh, the, the, the matrix itself that, that the sheets are made of is called PVA, polyvinyl alcohol. So that poly, it, it's a polymer. Um, and so, you know, although we, we do make just the powder, um, and we're, we're not using any PVA, but we, we are starting to see a lot of people that are concerned and want to move away from plastic packaging. And, and unfortunately, instead, they are unknowingly buying and using products that might eliminate the the plastic bottle, but are directly adding plastic to the waterway itself. And and, and that we're very concerned about that. So you're saying that the product itself is plastic. Exactly. So yeah, you might, we even see, we're seeing claims that say, hey, plastic free packaging and like, okay, well the outside, you know, the box that product is coming in is, is paper. That's correct. But the, the package it's, or that the product itself, that sheet that you're adding or that pod that you're adding to your dishwasher, the pod that you're adding to your laundry, um, you can, I mean, if you touch it, you can feel it. It feels like plastic. It's made of PVA. It's made of plastic. And so the product itself is plastic. So transferring the, the, the plastic from the exterior packaging where hopefully you can contain it to to your waterway where it's not getting contained the 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 wastewater systems are not set up they're not regulated to remove pva so they're not removing pva um understandably so you know they're they're certainly limited in terms of their resources they're only going to focus on the really important uh regulated ingredients they're not removing pva from from the waterway so we're, we're intentionally adding plastic to to our waterways every time we use these products insanity Kate, you're a you're a B Corp, I believe. Yes, we are certified B Corp since tell us, 2015. Tell us, tell us about that. I don't think a lot of people know what that means, but tell us what that yeah. means. So uh, we love being a B Corp. If you kind of think about it, um, if you look for an organic certification on your produce or, or if you buy coffee or chocolate and you look for a fair trade certification on your chocolate, you can think about B Corp as that sort of a certification, but it is on the entire company rather than just the product itself. And it's run by a third party. So we have to regularly update and we, we fill out, it's called an assessment. It's basically a whole list of questions that um, are about various aspects of our business. So it does include the products, you know, are we making products that are safer for the environment and so on, but it, it looks at the operations of the company as a whole as well. So governance is an important one. Who owns the company? Do we disclose the, the actual humans that own the company? You know, for Meliora, for example, we're, we're entirely privately family owned. Um, I own a majority in the company. So we're also women owned. 
uh, as opposed to, you know, are, are you owned by someone else like Procter and Gamble? Um, and, uh, <laughs> don't, so, don't do yeah. that. Don't do that. No matter how much they offer you, Kate. <laughs> PNG, are you listening? I need $5 billion. Um, <laughs> no, I would, I wouldn't do that to you. Um, so yeah, so, so it does look at multiple aspects of the business, right? Um, governance, how do we treat our workers, right? For example. So yeah, are, are we paying at least a living wage? Um, do we give a bonuses to our workers? Are we giving training, development? What are our um, off time off policies? So, so it's specific things that you can look at as a whole and it literally gives you a number rating. So you can sign on to bcorporation.net. You can look up our, our score. Um, you can compare us to other certified B Corps in terms of our score. Um, and so the only way that you can get certified is by earn, earning a minimum number of points on this assessment. So for example, if we didn't have a program to measure all of our, our waste in a year, which we do, but say we didn't have that, okay, we wouldn't get those points and I'd have to find somewhere else to, to find those points. Maybe I'd give my employees a raise or something like that. So it, it is a way to turn this very nebulous idea of, oh, we're a sustainable company. We're a, we're a triple bottom line, triple bottom line, meaning people, planet, and profit. So instead of just saying that, hey, you know, we're a triple on bottom line business, we have to prove it. We have to qualify and get a minimum score in order to be part of this really elite group of businesses that are doing business in, in this different way. And it, it provides a lot of accountability to us because this is stuff that we want to do anyway, um, but it can be difficult sometimes on a day-to-day basis. You're trying to run a business and sometimes it's it's hard to, to keep your eye on, on all those decisions um, and want to make those triple bottom line decisions and having that accountability, knowing like, oh, hey, like, you know, it'll help our assessment or like we'll maintain our certification or, hey, we'll get extra points in our certification if, if we um, kind of make make this decision. So it helps build a business case and it helps prove that although any company can sort of say they're doing the sustainable thing and maybe throw up a, a website saying how great we are and you know we donated 0.11, you know, 0.001% of our profits were donated to environmental causes. Like that doesn't cut it with B Corp. You know, we donate 2% of our revenues, not just profits. So it really becomes sort of another class and, and it really separates, you know, the the greenwashers and the people that like think or say they're doing um, a lot in terms of sustainability, but this really kind of proves it. I know that because I was, you know, doing some research on your company, but are you allowed to, or are you supposed to, or can you make a note about that on your packaging? I mean, how, how will people know that you're a B Corp and and learn more about what B Corps do? Absolutely. Yeah. So we, there is a logo. It's like a, a B with a circle around it, uh, which I, I think is kind of funny. Uh, it's, it's not, we don't get an A grade. I guess it's a B, you know, so that's, <laughs> um, which is fine. There's always room for improvement. Right. Um, so, so there are some people that are starting to, to recognize that logo. There, there are some brands that are much more recognizable than Meliora. Um, ben and Jerry's is a certified B Corp. So if you like ice cream, definitely look out for that logo. Um, and uh, Patagonia, the clothing company, they, mm-hmm. they are a certified B Corp. Um, so you, you will see this a lot of times on, you know, on, on product packaging. And I think it is starting to get more recognized. Certainly, you know, we were, we were founded eight years ago. And at the time we would be delighted and surprised when someone would mention, oh, hey, you're a B Corp. And, and we get it pretty regularly now. That's great. It's really great. A great thing for our listeners to watch out for when you're buying anything is to watch out for that B in a circle. So the only thing that we really didn't cover is your work on wastewater, which you did when you were an academic. 
And mm-hmm. how much did that influence what you're doing now? Because you Quite know that bit, every, cleaning, every cleaning product goes down the drain yeah. and finally wound its way into a wastewater treatment plant. And, and also tell us how the wastewater treatment plants are, are unable to remove certain things in mm. other cleaning products. Mm. Absolutely. That's something that... Um, you know, I think it's not that the information is unavailable. I just think that I happen to have the unique background where, you know, when you spend, you know, three semesters doing calculations about what's in wastewater, it makes you think about about it when you do your laundry, right? Like, hey, what's going down the drain? Um, right. So I think it's it's really, I, you know, I mentioned so some product founders have the background of being really concerned about a particular health issue in their family. My, my concern and the inspiration for, for Meliora was really being concerned about what was going into the wastewater. And that has led into everything else we do. Of course, we're concerned about human health. It's obviously one of the huge impacts we have. Of course, we're concerned about air quality, but it really did start with water quality. And that's because that's what I was studying. So um, the the really wonderful thing is that, you know, I, I have a friend that works at the wastewater plant here. And when I was, you know, reading, the, there was a recent study about PVA, that the plastic that's going into our waterways uh, that came out in June. And after I read the report, I, I literally got to call someone that today is, you know, is at the plant that works on it and and ask them these questions directly um, and learn more about about how it works right now. And and if we talk about, you know, what the regulations mean and how and how that affects us, wastewater management is it's a government entity, right? Like it's a it's a public utility. And to simplify things, say you've got a hundred dollar budget, you know, to treat all your wastewater um, and then you get a list uh, of contaminants and there's a long list of contaminants for shortness sake, we'll say there's like three things, including like lead and organic contaminants, uh, you know, on that list. And they say like, legally, you have to remove these contaminants from the waterway and here's your hundred dollars, like good luck. Now, if you're running the wastewater treatment plant, Uh, and you've got $100 and you've got to take two things out, you better start with taking those two things out of the wastewater. And it might take you all $100 to remove those two contaminants that you legally have to remove, right? And if if there's something that's not on that list, then I've got to figure out either how to magically make more money come to my list, which that's that's taxpayer money. I think we all know that that can be pretty difficult uh, to, to do. Um, so really, if you think about it from, from the wastewater management perspective, it's it's irresponsible to be treating contaminants that are not on that regulated list. It's, it's essentially, you know, it's a, a waste, quote unquote, of, of money to be treating things that they don't have to treat. So I certainly understand, you know, why wastewater plants are not set up to treat things. So so the, the options that we have are either get these contaminants onto the legally regulated list and then tax everybody to remove these contaminants that frankly companies are putting into products um, uh, on purpose um, or the alternative is to not use those products right or, or to, to require companies not to put contaminants that are not treated by the wastewater process and unfortunately neither of those things is true right now so so right now we're, we're intentionally our companies are intentionally you know making products with a contaminant to wastewater that that is not being removed Really well, it's always it's always about going upstream to the problem, right? Not going downstream. Yep. It's going upstream. Where is this problem coming from, and how do we alleviate the problem at the source if we can? So, right. Yeah. Oh boy, where are you going, Kate? What's next for you? What's going <laughs> to uh, with your oh, company? Oh boy. You know, we're, we're trooping along. Um, it's been, it's been a tough two years. Um, we are, uh, we're, we're still open. We're still operating. Our, our staff is healthy. That's, that's number one priority for us is to keep the factory going and, and make sure that everybody's safe. Um, that's still the number one priority. Uh, hopefully that will, um, you know, stop being such a, 
active issue soon. But we continue to expand. You know, uh, a lot of the issues we've talked about today are, are not commonly known. Um, it is our mission. It's our dream that everybody in the U.S. at, at minimum, and you know, hopefully beyond that soon, is either aware of these issues and can work to to help alleviate them, or they become non-issues because it's so common that a product like Meliora is the most commonly used product when cleaning. Um, that that it's not common to have VOCs and 1,4-dioxide and these other issues uh, with our products. So, so that's our dream. Um, you know, we want ingredients to be more transparent. We want the industry to, to either actually change for the better or to be regulated and be forced to change for the better. Uh, and, we're, and we're working towards that on both ends by, by, by leading by example and, and then also advocating for additional regulation in the industry. So Meliora, where did that come from, the name? It's Latin. Um, Meliora is a Latin word. It means better or better things. Really? And cool. yeah, that, that was our goal. Um, you know, there's always room for improvement uh, to us. Better means, you know, obviously offering something better than conventional today, um, but also improving ourselves. We want to be better today than we were yesterday uh, and, and just keep, keep making things better. You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show, and our guest has been scientist, engineer, and now business owner and entrepreneur, Kate Jacobus, the CEO of Meliora. This is the point in the show where Patty answers questions from our listeners. We got an email this week from Kate, who lives just outside Boston, who writes, My town is considering replacing our old yellow streetlights with bright LEDs that look like daylight. I have a streetlight right outside my house. I've heard that constant exposure to this new kind of light can be harmful. What should I do? Okay, well, before I can tell you what you should do, and there may actually not be any options for you, uh, I can tell you that this is happening all over the country, uh, and it's because of the energy savings, for sure. Um, these LEDs, you know, they are, they last longer, they use less electricity, um, and the, you know, they come in a variety of colors, and they're more directional, they're appealing for many, many different applications, but they are a problem for our health. Even the AMA has made recommendations for addressing blue light exposure in streetlights. They are, you know, really concerned about these, what they call these higher color temperature bulbs. And LEDs come in everything from, you know, 1,000 to 10,000 K. That's a, that's a scale that they use, a Kelvin scale, that actually gives you the color temperature of a bulb. At the lower end of the scale, you have like 2,000 to 3,500. That is, that is very similar to the old low-pressure sodium lamps that is what she has now in front of her house, Katie. And so that's what you want them to replace it with. You want them to place it, replace that old sodium bulb with a an LED bulb that has a lower color temperature. But that's actually not what's happening. They're putting in these super bright daylight mimicking bulbs. And it feels like you're sitting in the middle of a mall parking lot, you yeah. know, right in, right in your home. And that's crazy. So what's happening is that people are finding it really, really difficult. They're, you know, they're having sleep troubles. They're having all kinds of problems. But most importantly, this high, this high intensity, this blue-white light actually suppresses melatonin production during the night, which is critical for our body's circadian rhythm. And it's a hormone that's really, really important in our bodies. Harvard publication said that study after study has linked the night shift and exposure to light at night to several types of cancer. And then in a 2017 study by Harvard, they found that exposure to residential outdoor light at night can contribute to invasive breast cancer risk. 
So what do we do? We immediately get in touch with our towns and talk to them about it and just make sure that they're putting in these lower temperature bulbs. And that's really, really important. Anything from 2000 to 3500 will give you a comfortable, warm glow and not this bright, bright light, which is having an impact. Okay, so anything less than, anything 3500 degrees or less would be fine. Above 3500 is not so great. That's correct. Yeah. And okay. if they do happen to put one in front of your home, you can actually even say, look, I'll buy a bulb because I don't want this in front of my home. I don't want this disturbing my sleep pattern or my circadian rhythm, which yeah. is really, really important for our health. If you have an environmental question for Patty, anything from cleaning products to water filters, air fresheners, dry cleaning, paint, carpeting, baby furniture, whatever it is, drop us a line at greenstreetradio.com and we'll try to get to your question on the air. If you missed any part of today's program, you can always catch it again on our website. That's greenstreetradio.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter and send us your comments about the show. That's going to do it for our show today. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.